Today's presenting sponsor is Datadog. If your business is being driven by software, you know today's applications are more complex than ever. They're sitting on multiple layers of infrastructure and distributed services, and it can be very complicated to manage. Datadog brings visibility into every part of your infrastructure, as well as APM monitoring for your application's performance. Customizable dashboards, collaboration tools, and alerts let you develop your own workflow for observability and incident response. Datadog integrates seamlessly with all of your apps and systems, from Amazon Web Services to Kubernetes to MySQL, so you can get visibility in minutes. You want to get started now? Go to datadog.com slash cloudcast to get started with Datadog and get a free t-shirt. Datadog is trusted by thousands of enterprises, so if you haven't tried Datadog at your company or on your side project, go to datadog.com slash cloudcast to try it out and get a free t-shirt. And now, on with the show. Cloudcast Media presents, from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina, this is The Cloudcast with Aaron Delp and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome back to The Cloudcast. We're coming to you live from the massive uh, Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, it's both of us this week. Brian, how you doing, man? I'm good, man. I'm uh, I'm actually home for a few days, and then I'm I'm on the road. I've got uh, 11 flights in 14 days, so I'm going to be a road warrior. <laughs> yeah, and and for a change, um, you know, it, it it seems like I've been the one traveling there for a while, and and you were kind of holding down the fort. But I think it's going to flip for a little while. So uh, so uh, you know, unfortunately for everyone out there, they they might have to listen to more of me coming up before too much longer. Uh, but but uh, tell everyone a little bit about what you've been doing. You you're, you're kind of doing uh, kind of a roadshow thing with alumni uh, Gene Kim. Yeah, so uh you know, work-wise um you know, obviously working on containers and kubernetes and stuff and we've been doing this uh this DevOps roadshow with uh with Gene Kim. So we've been in let's see, Pittsburgh, New York, Atlanta, Montreal, Dallas, Los Angeles and Denver uh the last couple of weeks. So it's been fun. It's been uh you know, get to get to learn a lot from Gene. He's his thing is basically, you know, what are the lessons he's learned since the Phoenix project? Uh, one of these days, I'm going to try and, and kind of do a show with him after that. But uh, it's been kind of hectic with with getting to the different cities. But I, pr- I promise we're going to get him on one of these times, and we'll just uh, we'll talk about it. It's been a good uh, good good bunch of lessons learned, and, and he's gotten to the point where um, I guess the big takeaway for me has always been like, you know, can, can you really kind of quantify DevOps or can you tell when you're doing DevOps? And uh, he's been doing a lot of research and, and talking to people and it's, it's kind of getting to be kind of, you know, you can fit it in a box at these points. So it's, it's been fun. Nice. That's fantastic. So let's go ahead and get to the show for the, for this week. Um, so we've got uh, Adam Johnson, uh, co-founder, CEO of IO Pipe. How you doing, Adam? I'm great. Thanks uh, for having me here. It's uh, good to talk to you guys. Yeah, absolutely. And it, this goes back to so so we were at Serverless Conf uh, together a few months ago, and and uh, we got to talking, and we've been meaning to have you on the show, and and uh, we're finally getting getting around it. So a little bit of our apologies for for waiting so long for the follow up. But but first of all, really, what we wanted to do is is um, really get some of both a combination of your background, background of Serverless, background of IO Pipe, and so we're going to combine all of those together here a little bit. So so why don't we start off with the the um, Give us a little bit about your background and and walk us through. So first of all, what I thought was super interesting is um, the the TechStars incubator program and and how IOPipe uh, kind of came into being. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my personal background is uh, I started out as a software uh, developer. Um, I was uh, basically started my career in Tokyo, which is a little odd, but uh, I had found myself in in Japan. And uh, I started working at startups uh, building software 
um, doing a variety of things, uh, mostly at startups there. Uh, so I was working on some social networking uh, company doing backend infrastructure engineering. I moved into virtual worlds. Um, this was like circa 2006, 2007 timeframe. And uh, I did my own startup uh, in Japan called Genki, where we were building virtual worlds on mobile um, around the Second Life days. And uh, that kind of flailed out. The whole uh, first wave of virtual worlds kind of flailed out. Um, and I moved out over to a, uh, a promising startup called Midokoro, which was doing software-defined networking. Um, so I started as the first engineer there, um, was building out distributed software networking, basically focused around OpenStack, providing networking that's scalable for them. Um, kind of moved over to the business side, moved from Japan to San Francisco to start the offices there, um, and uh, did that for the last um, six plus years. So I was really deep in the OpenStack land, getting into Kubernetes um, and other microservices platforms that were out there. And then I saw the uh, the light, which was uh, serverless, and decided to jump out and uh, co-found IOPipe with Erica, my co-founder. And uh, we used Techstars New York as kind of our launchpad for getting IOPipe off the ground um, and moving really quickly through that program to get something in the hands of uh, early Lambda users. So it was a very interesting experience kind of going through that. It was very intense because um, we were um, definitely much earlier stage than other companies in our in our cohort. Um, this was last summer. Um, so now there's, uh, there's another class going on in the summer uh, in New York right now. So it's one year later, and uh, we've we've come a long ways in one year. And I think a lot of that was due to um, working with tech stars and being a part of that environment, which just kind of continues to push you really hard um, and make you focus on accelerating and getting things into the hands of users as soon as possible, trying to validate whether that's working or not, and really kind of fine tune your uh, our product strategy. So that that was really fundamental in getting IOPipe to where it is today. And it was just an awesome experience. Yeah, no, that's that's very cool. I know, you know, we we hear we hear some things about it. It's cool to have somebody who's kind of been through it in, in terms of the intensity. And um, one of the things that you know, I know you go through as a as a as a new company is is trying to find you know product fit, market fit. Yeah, you know, serverless and, and lambda is still kind of new. And if you go back, you know, twelve months, eighteen months, I mean, people were still trying to figure out like. What is this thing? Is it is it really a, a different paradigm for developers and all this stuff? Like, what what was the thing for you guys that sort of said we want to base the whole company around around serverless? I mean, what's the what was the draw? Was there was there a use case? Was there some sort of customer discussion you had that you guys were like, yeah, this is this is the right thing to go go make this the central focus of what we're doing? So. Erica definitely, uh, my co-founder Erica, she's our CTO, definitely keyed us in, keyed me in on the whole serverless world um, back in probably early two, 2016, early last year. Uh, we were chatting. Erica was uh, had just left Docker and was working on some projects around the serverless space. And I had heard of Lambda and I knew what it did, but I wasn't really keyed into what was really going on and what kind of was happening in terms of uh, developments in the serverless space and kind of the whole application architecture of building things in a serverless manner. So I talked to Erica and I got really excited uh, about the prospects of serverless, um, especially after talking to a handful of users. Um, you know, what I found was that the drivers for some of the early users who were going kind of all in on Lambda and serverless in general was a couple things. One was 
just the ability to ship code faster. So they could go, you know, write code and ship it to production in seconds, um, where it would, even for a startup, would take them, you know, minutes or hours previously. They can just do it at the click of a button and it's and it's done. That's extremely powerful for a startup. Um, so being able to build your product and service on the backs of existing services that are out there, like you know, Kinesis and Dynamo and, and S3 and Lambda were very powerful for any startup, including ourselves. So that was one driving factor that we heard over and over from talking to companies who were kind of going all in on serverless. Um, the other was the cost savings. So we saw, we talked to some users who were migrating from EC2 to Lambda, and for their particular use cases, they were saving up to 90% on their AWS bill. That's pretty extraordinary, and it was um, eye-opening to me and, and a, definitely a convincing factor that serverless is here to stay and it's it's going to be the way that applications are built in the in the near future. Well, and, and Adam, then, then it kind of goes on to the natural progression of the next question of then, why why IO pipe? What what problem does it solve? Um, because we, we kind of take all of that background and we kind of put it all together now. And and once we talk about that, then we can ask a couple more follow up questions a little bit deeper into the architecture itself. But but let's start off with what is it and 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 what's the use cases? Yeah, absolutely. So so you know when we started IOPipe, the the original idea was a little different than what we have today. I think it was a little bit grander um, in terms of what we were trying to accomplish. And maybe some of those things we'll get to, but over the course of talking to many, many users and really awesome mentors through the Techstars program, that really helped us focus on where we're at right now with IOPipe, which is providing kind of a tooling around both the development and operations side of running functions in, in Lambda. And you know the original idea was Kind of around the uh, very similar to a combination of step functions before step functions was out there, and the idea of having a repository that's public, kind of like an npm or a GitHub, where users would upload their um, functions to that repository, and then you could mix and match those functions using a step functions like tool, uh, and then being able to wrap that and run those that code anywhere. So really, um, for some of those familiar, it was kind of like a read like a, a newer version of Yahoo Pipes back in the day, but you could run it anywhere you like. That was the original idea of IO Pipe. Um, we were building out some of that functionality and in validating, trying to validate that idea, we talked to just countless Lambda users that were out there trying to learn what their use cases were all about, what were some of their challenges and how we could solve those issues. And the overwhelming response we got was that Lambda at the time had a just a huge lack of visibility and instrumentation. So they just didn't really know what was going on in that black box. And that was a, and still is a hurdle for many people getting into serverless development, right? You can write your code, it's very easy to push it into Lambda and have it run. But once you get things that are much more complex and you're you're trusting it with mission critical, trusting mission critical software on that infrastructure, it's scary not being able to have the view into the service itself to know what's going on and if things are going wrong is this a code is this because of some code changes that were happening or configuration or is it some underlying service issue in one of the many services that you may be using um, for that serverless application so we just saw that there was just a massive lack in tooling and decided to focus on that area make that better because that would be one of the biggest barriers for serverless getting to get uh, mass adoption 
So that's what we're focused on today still is providing that kind of tooling for both, you know, the development side to make debugging and, you know, dev test easier, as well as like for the operation side, when you're in production, getting the ability to monitor your application for performance and finding anomalies and figuring out what's really happening um, when you do find an issue so that you can find the root cause without having to jump through five, six different tools to figure that out. And and does, so does that mean, since obviously everything is function-based and you think of it as, yeah, the step functions and things like that, does that mean then you're you're basically including calls into um, existing code? Is that how you would, I'm using air quotes here, call IOPipe? Yeah, so, so basically how IOPipe works today is we have a, an open source library. We have a couple libraries right now. Um, depending on the language that you write your functions in. So we support Node, and we also have a Python uh, library that's in an alpha state. Um, and basically how it works is you add our library to your function, and then you wrap your code with our with our call. So we will basically take the callback uh, of your functions, uh, and every time it's run in Lambda, or even if you're running it like locally for testing, IOPipe's going to run with it, going to collect information about that runtime, about um, is collecting basic basic telemetry, and then it looks down into the container level as well to collect info about like CPU memory utilization, um, file descriptor usage, things of that nature. We collect all of that, we wrap that telemetry up, and at the end of the invocation, we're the callback, so we send that to our API. We are actually running um, APIs locally in all of the regions uh, where our users are running in Lambda so that it uh, has a very short distance to travel, so the latency is low. Um, but at the in, in general, like it sends the telemetry at the end of the invocation, um, and we just uh, send a you know weaved uh, code back uh, so that it uh, is not waiting for us. And behind the scenes, we have a data pipeline that processes that data. Um, it's a ton of data that we're consuming because we're collecting every single invocation. We're not doing sampling, uh, and we do this because we we feel that's important to have high resolution for functions, right? If you start aggregating data, you end up losing a lot of visibility into what's going on because those invocations are running across multiple machines and containers across the cloud. And if you are missing some of that by aggregating the data, you're not going to get real story sometimes. So we collect everything, put it through our data pipeline, and then you get that back in terms of us analyzing it and in terms of providing those uh, that telemetry and metrics um, in a real-time dashboard, so that's what that's what IOPipe provides, and that's kind of so, how it works in a nutshell. Yeah. So what, I mean, one of the things that we we sort of hear, and it it gets, uh, you know, we, we've been at a few of the different serverless conferences, and you you know you look at different talks about serverless. Um, some of the discussions is this kind of the developer side of it kind of loves serverless because in essence it's. Uh, sort of no ops, right? A lot of the things that, that ops used to have to deal with scalability and set up and, uh, you know, like kind of goes away. It's just handled by the platform. Performance management is kind of looked at as being somewhat of, you know, like that's ops's problem to deal with. I mean, how do you, how do you, how do you position? I mean, are most of the people that you talk to kind of, of the, of the mindset of like, I write the code, therefore I run it or, does this fit? I mean, are you, are you seeing an evolving sort of ops side of serverless that, that this makes sense for? Or what's, you know, how, how does that, you know, th- those sort of old silos kind of fit into this into this world here between devs and what ops do and, and what who should have visibility into things? 
That's definitely an area that's in a current transition phase. Um, I think that long term, um, developers are going to be the ones who are on call for serverless functions being being run in production, because most of the issues that you run into are going to be code level issues because you know handled by the the services like you know Google, Microsoft, Amazon. So that responsibility lies in the hands of developers. But at the same time, I think that the ops teams are evolving and they will. Kind of merge from they'll they'll merge with the development teams. We're starting to see some of this with more forward-thinking companies, but in general, we'll see ops teams move from a kind of sysadmin minds toward, or you know, their purpose is to be experts in all of the relevant services that the public clouds offer. There's you know, you log into Amazon's console and there's so many services. There's a bunch that I just don't even know what they do. Very hard thing that it's going to be important for teams to have X that can cover those services and provide developers with best practices on how to architect their applications using these services, how to configure them properly. And then, you know, when issues do arise, you want to have those experts on hand so that when there's a figure out, was this like a configuration issue or uh, maybe we're hitting some throttling or uh, maybe it's just a, you know, poorly architected, there's a bottleneck that's architected into the the application the way it's, the, the way it's been developed. Great that and you can't expect all developers to know all of those services. So I think that's where I see ops teams evolving into and we're definitely starting to see that happen. Um, I think right now it's tough for ops teams because they have to juggle a lot of that. They have to still be great at uh, managing that, you know, what I call legacy infrastructure, which is virtual machines and and even containers to, to some extent um, with moving towards being experts in all of these services that serverless applications are utilizing. So that's it's definitely tricky right now, but I think over time, um, it will be much more clear what those teams will look like. Cool, interesting. Yeah, and the so it might help everyone a little bit too, because um, what we've done, especially like the the shows we did at the serverless conference and, and then uh, really talking about this as a wrapper for all of this, it, it helps sometimes with concrete examples. And so, what are the kind of the most common use cases you're seeing? And but it's really a two part question. And in addition to that, within those use cases, what are some of the common performance challenges, architecture challenges that that folks that are starting to look at this really need to be aware of? Yeah. So so I think I can start with some of the the performance challenges because I think those overlap with most of the use cases in general because they're. They're, they start out right now as pretty basic, and I think as serverless gets more mainstream and as organizations get uh, more complex serverless applications with many, many functions uh, representing a single application, new problems will arise. But right now, it's still early days, and we're we're just dealing with most of the basic fundamental issues, which are you know sizing uh, the functions. In, in Amazon Lambda in particular, you have to choose which memory CPU tier your functions will run on. There are something like 23 different tiers to choose from. It's memory CPU bound. Um, and you know, from talking to a lot of users, I asked, like, how do you choose which size? And there isn't really a lot of guidance around that. So it's pretty difficult to know what size to choose. What happens is a lot of people are just choosing you know, 128. And if they hit me- out of memory errors, then they bump it up several notches. If it works, they just kind of leave it. That may be fine for early development stage, but as a application or functions go into production and if it's running many, many times, um, they may be not as performant as it should be. So it's not obvious that 
which which tier to choose because if you choose a higher tier, it can either reduce your cost or increase your costs, and it's not guaranteed either time. So if your code is very CPU bound and you're running on a low tier, it may run for a lot longer. And since you're charged per gigabyte second, that's going to drum up a pretty high uh, Lambda bill. Whereas if you jumped that tier up a couple notches, you're going to get more CPU. Your functions are going to run in less time. You may run more invocations, but in general, you may have less gigabyte seconds in total so you could reduce your bill. But that doesn't always happen. It could be the opposite where you're not needing all of that CPU or it's not CPU bound as much um, or it's memory bound where you bump up the size and it may just increase your, your cost because that higher tier costs more. It may not increase the... The, uh, the invocation time, so or decrease it, I should say. So that's one of the challenges that can be tr pretty tricky. Um, we at IOPipe provide some visibility into memory consumption over time, and we're, we're even giving the ability to break it into uh, per container view, so you can kind of pin the process to a container and see what those metrics look like, um, which helps you find things like leaks. Um, so leaks are the next kind of big challenge in finding performance issues. Since your function is running across the same container, across multiple invocations um, that containers reuse. Um, it means that those resources that are leaking out are going to leak into that container, which could cause issues. And you know, the challenge here is that the existing tools like CloudWatch are not really providing insights into what's going on underneath Lambda because it is serverless. Um, but in those cases, you do need to have deeper views into what's going on so that you can figure out is this a memory leak or some other issue? Um, so we provide that kind of container level view to let you see if you're having this kind of sawtooth pattern, which could represent a memory leak that's happening or file descriptor leaks or any other kind of leaks run into these issues as being very tricky to debug. Um, and they do exist in a serverless world. So it's, it's kind of challenging. I think the tooling in general will improve to make this easier to detect over time, but it's still pretty rough and, and hard to figure this stuff out. Um, and let, let me ask you this as a kind of a quick follow-up then, too, because uh, I've always wondered how this kind of fits in architecture-wise. How does um, how does the serverless framework fit into all of it as well? I know you have serverless framework integration now. Yeah, absolutely. So serverless framework is is a great tool that's allowing you to kind of piece together the scaffolding for a serverless application. And it's it's improving pretty rapidly. It's come a long ways in 12 months. Um, 12 months ago, it was fairly basic in what it offered. A lot of people we were talking to at the time had built their own frameworks. But I think now it's, it's very, very powerful because it integrates with a lot of other AWS services. So you can basically create a template for your uh, serverless application architecture, develop it all there, hit one command, and it's going to create all of that using cloud formations. So it sets up the S3 buckets for you. It uploads the code for you and uh, manages uh, all of that stuff for you so that you don't have to end up write it, writing a bunch of glue code or scaffolding to do that for you. So it's, it just works out of the box. So I think tools like serverless, um, there are other tools out there as well that do similar things, um, are very, very important for increasing the adoption of serverless. And even for, for ourselves, uh, we have an IOPipe plugin for the serverless framework. And it definitely makes it easier to use IOPipe because, as I described before, you're kind of wrapping your code with IOPipe's handler. Um, it's only like two, three lines of code, but with the serverless plugin, you just add the plugin and wrap your code when you deploy. So that's even easier. It does automatic updates and things like that. So it's just much better to have a powerful framework that has a nice plugin uh, ecosystem out there um, when building uh, 
applications because you get access to all of them stuff like IOPipe and others. Um, so I think that the, those frameworks are really, really important for getting people onboarded with serverless uh, quickly. Nice. Nice. Very yeah, nice. makes sense. And um, uh, Austin Collins, by the way, the CEO um, over there, um, we, he's on our, our list of uh, folks we're going to track down eventually as well. So, so no, that, that's, that's fantastic. Thanks for all the information. So we're kind of out of, out of time here for, for the day. But uh, so, Brian, do you want to go ahead and take us home? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Adam, real quick, what's the best way for folks to define the IO pipe code or, uh, you know, get a demo, you know, use the service, all, all the ways to go stalk you guys? Absolutely. So um, you can find everything at IOPipe.com. Um, you can also reach out to us on Twitter at, at IOPipes. Uh, and then we also have a Slack uh, channel with a bunch of people in there kind of asking questions and sharing stories of their serverless development. Um, so you can find the link to the Slack on our website at IOPipe.com as well. And then all of our code is on GitHub, um, IOPipe. Very cool. We'll, uh, we'll get links to that in the show notes. And uh, Adam, thank you so much for the time today. It's, it's great to see sort of the evolution from, you know, uh, Lambda as a service to, to, to more and more people getting involved with it. And then obviously, as like you said, to get it into production, is it's important to have the right tooling. So it's, it's, it'll be interesting to watch not only how that evolves, but also kind of like you said, the, the organizational structures evolve. So folks, with that, we're going to wrap up the show for today. So for Adam and for, for Aaron, thank you for listening. And we will talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to The Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media.